from The Conversation. This is Essays on Air, where we bring you the best and most beautiful writing from Australian researchers. Today, Kath Kenny, a doctoral candidate at Macquarie University, is reading her essay titled The Personal is Now Commercial, Popular Feminism Online. Once a week, during electives at primary school in 1980, I walked with a group of girls to the local hairdressing salon, where we were taught how to apply eyeshadow, lipstick and smooth foundation onto our perfect skins. We also played AFL with the boys during sports period, but the news from women's liberation about makeup and women's oppression hadn't yet arrived at my little school in the sleepy beachside town of Sorrento. Second wave feminism, to a large extent, defined itself against the beauty industry. As Susan McGarry writes, one of the Australian women's liberation movement's first actions was a 1970 protest against Adelaide University's Miss Fresher beauty contest. It was inspired in part by a protest in the US against the 1968 Miss America pageant. Women's liberationists did have their disagreements about individual choices and tactics. Anne Summers, writing in the Women's Liberation newsletter Me Jane in 1973, said she was abused for wearing makeup at a women's liberation conference. Carol Hanish, a member of the New York radical women group behind the 1968 protest, said later that protesters should target not the women who entered beauty contests, but the men and bosses who imposed false beauty standards on women. As early as 1963, Betty Friedan had argued women's magazines were central to creating the feminine mystique, an infantilising image of womanhood built around a myth of beautiful women in beautiful homes, tending to handsome husbands and beautiful children. By 1975, Summers agreed. In Damned Whores and God's Police, she wrote, Popular magazines have as their principal raison d'etre the codification and constant updating of femininity. And by 1991, feminists were still linking beauty to women's oppression. Naomi Wolf's The Beauty Myth argued that women's progress in the public sphere was matched by a fashion and media industry that promoted increasingly narrow standards of physical perfection. The superwoman also had to be a supermodel. Wolf's thesis was an important and galvanising one. But by the 1990s, popular culture was in some ways outrunning popular feminism. As an undergraduate, I nodded along with my feminist friends reading Wolf during the day, while at night we frocked up and painted our lips to visit inner-city clubs where androgyny and queer culture were increasingly visible. 
celebrity figures such as Bowie, Prince and Madonna had prompted fans, as well as gender and cultural studies scholars, to ask if fashion and makeup, rather than necessarily being oppressive, could be seen in terms of play, choice and experiments around gender and sexuality. Scholars had also started to ask whether women who consumed fashion and beauty products really were all passive dupes of big corporations. In more recent years, some have argued that beauty and fashion magazines might have been slipping feminist messages and information into their pages all along. The relationship of feminism to the beauty industry and women's magazines, in other words, has a complex history. Still, as I listened to the then editor-in-chief of Teen Vogue, Elaine Welteroth, speak at the Sydney Writers' Festival in 2017, it occurred to me that today's popular feminism would be unrecognisable to many of the Miss America protesters half a century ago. I'm a big proponent that young people and young women should never have to choose between being seen or spoken to as either stylish or smart. For Welteroth, an African-American former beauty editor at Teen Vogue, women's magazines and beauty products are feminism now. Beauty and style... Welteroth said, are just really great platforms to open up important conversation. Welteroth has been celebrated for commissioning stories ranging from Trump gaslighting America and abortion rights to cultural appropriation at the Coachella Music Festival and the difficulties of being intersex. She told her Sydney audience that fashion and beauty are portals to sisterhood and political awareness. I can't tell you how many times I've been in the bathroom with another woman, she said. We feel we have nothing in common, but we talk about a great lipstick shade or great hair. And it's just this doorway for connection and for understanding and for dialogue. While acknowledging earlier magazines that pioneered this path, like Marie Claire and Ms. Magazine, Welteroth claimed Teen Vogue's pairing of fashion and beauty with radical information is special and unprecedented. On my most Pollyannaish days, I want to cheer Welteroth and other online publications that mix politics with fashion and beauty for the way they are mainstreaming feminism. In Australia, Fairfax's daily life blends wide-eyed articles about Miranda Kerr's wedding dress with stories about Rosie Batty and smart commentary by writers such as Ruby Hamad about the relationship between feminism and Islam. Mia Friedman's Mamma Mia mixes stories about making waxing less painful with articles on reproductive rights. On closer inspection, though, this lashing together of feminist politics with a women's magazine sensibility has produced some odd results. In The Feminine Mystique, Friedan ridiculed a 1960s edition of the women's magazine McCall's for its articles on baldness in women, on the Duke and Duchess of Windsor, and on finding a second husband. In 2015, when Friedman launched a new and now-defunct site called Debrief Daily, she included stories on why women's hair thins out, the name of the Duke and Duchess of Cambridge's new baby, and one titled, Four Reasons Why Second Marriages Are Happier Marriages. In other words, the women's magazine formula runs deep in many online publications newly rebranded as feminist but does this mashup of fashion and celebrity and feminism have to be incompatible? For Welteroth, the answer is no. 
She says you can cover hard-hitting political and social issues and beauty, fashion and fame. Teen Vogue, she told us, takes news stories that maybe needed a little bit more context for a younger audience, maybe needed a personal narrative to make them seem relevant to them. It's this making the political personal that echoes the second wave idea of the personal being political, albeit in a reversed way. In my PhD research, I've been looking at the origin of the phrase the personal is political. Gloria Steinem has said crediting someone for coming up with it would be as absurd as crediting someone for inventing the term World War II. Still, its first use in a publication is commonly cited as being the headline of an article by the member of the New York Radical Women I mentioned earlier, Carol Hanisch, in the 1970 collection of essays Notes from the Second Year. Hanisch's article was a defence of second-wave feminism's consciousness-raising. Meeting in small groups, women told stories about their lives to understand how their personal problems were actually political ones, and they planned collective action. Women in the left and the civil rights movement felt that while they protested inequalities between black and white and the imperialist war in Vietnam, there were glaring injustices in their own personal lives. Women took the bulk of responsibility for housework and childcare, did the shit work, that's Hanish's word, in protest movements, were judged on their appearances, and took all the responsibility for contraception and abortion. Second wave feminists wanted sexual emancipation and the right to work alongside men, but they didn't want to do everything. They discussed all kinds of solutions, from communal living to state-provided free childcare, to a total revolution in the consumerist capitalist system. The jarring thing about the feminism of sites such as Daily Life or Mamma Mia today is that they seem to want to make women responsible for doing everything again. Take a look at the sections at the top of their websites and you'll see a list of topics such as relationships, health, beauty, careers and so on. The endless articles and lists of ways to improve and excel in all these areas can make these sites exhausting just to look at. It seems no coincidence that the same sites will carry articles about managing anxiety or 10 ways to cope with your depression and, most famously, Friedman's own tale of using Lexapro to cope with anxiety, a drug she endorsed to readers. Hey Mia, I was recently diagnosed with anxiety and my doctor has suggested I go on medication. I'm really against the idea because I don't want to put drugs in my body. What do you do to manage your anxiety? From Jane via Facebook. Well Jane, I put drugs in my body, um, but it's not the only way that I manage my anxiety. Many second waivers were influenced by the counterculture and with their radical therapy groups and interest in personal growth, they were also interested in self-care. And medication, of course, can be life-saving. But when second-wave feminists like Friedan saw large numbers of women who were anxious and using antidepressants, they asked how the world needed to change. Or, as Hanisch said in 1970, there are no personal solutions at this time. There is only collective action for a collective solution. Later, Hanisch did acknowledge that we can change ourselves at the same time as we change the world. But now, websites like Mamma Mia are increasingly asking how women can transform and adapt themselves to fit into a competitive, individualistic world. 
The emphasis is mostly on individual achievement and adaption to the status quo, rather than on changing the status quo. With their roots in the new left and the anti-capitalist counterculture, it's not surprising many early women's liberationists opposed the beauty industry and the commodification of women's bodies. They weren't against sex, who is, but rather the commercial exploitation of sex. Now, on Welteroth's Teen Vogue, articles about makeup and hairstyles or a bathing suit brand worn by model Bella Hadid jostle with serious stories about cinematic representations of eating disorders. And while Mamma Mia will run body-positive stories, it's often tied to products you can buy, like activewear and tights for larger women. Welteroth and Teen Vogue haven't been described as woke without good reason. And they are challenging publishers and the broader community's preconceptions about what young readers are interested in. And in consistently featuring women of colour on Teen Vogue's covers and on its pages, Welteroth can be seen as answering the Miss America protesters' complaint that the pageant had never had a winner who was black or Puerto Rican or Alaskan or Hawaiian or Mexican-American. But the Miss America protesters of 1968 were also concerned about an industry which sold us an impossibly unobtainable image of beauty. Today, Teen Vogue is still bound to the genre's code of presenting attractive bodies and aspirational lives. So it will run a critical article about cultural appropriation at Coachella Music Festival and illustrate it with an Instagram image of stunning models and a Jenner family member wearing an American headdress. On the face of it, it was encouraging when Welteroth told her Sydney audience her plans for Teen Vogue include bringing young girls together in real life to have conversations around the table where they can have their voices heard and work together to try to now solve some of these problems in the world. And while feminists in 1968 were protesting against the Miss America pageant and the fashion industry, Elaine Welteroth and her Teen Vogue team were among the leaders of the Women's March in January 2017. It's been a heart-rending time to be both a woman and an immigrant in this country. Our dignity, our character, our rights have all been under attack. But this all feels like consciousness raising version two, branded with a Vogue trademark. It has to be a good thing for a struggling and isolated teen to read about a celebrity coming out, or coping with depression, or the mechanics of safe anal sex. But I also find it hard to celebrate what is, in many ways, a major corporation effectively selling your politics back to you, as one friend recently described it. I'm not the target audience, and I don't think it would be terrible if these faux convened consciousness-raising sessions came with a gift pack of a rainbow tattoo for Pride Week, a t-shirt with a Black Lives Matter endorsed fist logo, and even purple eyeshadow for feminism. But I can't help feeling like I'm back in primary school being marched down to the beauty professionals to learn how to be a woman. Today's episode of Essays on Air was edited by Jenny Henderson. We've used music in this episode from David Zetze and others from Free Music Archive. You can see a full list of audio credits on our website at theconversation.com.